The Gospel of Yohanan equates the sacrifice of Yeshua with that slaughtered lamb. And as Messianics, we know that this is so. We're told by John the Baptist, as well as Yeshua, to repent and believe the good news that we can be born again. In the Judaism at the time, this would have been a complete mind blow, complete paradigm shift in thought and in theology. Today, we're all going to be flies on the wall and listen to with Hebrew ears and Hebrew eyes a conversation between Yeshua and a man named Nicodemus, his Aramaic name. We know him as Nicodemus, about this very paradigm shift of being born again. Three main texts that we're going to be looking at is uh, Mark chapter 10, 13 through 16, Yohanan, or John chapter 3, and Bereshit, Genesis 1. So what do we know about Nicodemus? We know he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees get a really bad rap, mostly because of the encounters with Yeshua that we've all read in the Brit HaChadashah, but it didn't start out that way. We actually owe a debt of gratitude to the Pharisees who give us modern rabbinical Judaism after the destruction of the Second Temple. Centuries before that, the Babylonians had invaded Judea and destroyed the First Temple, and thousands of aristocratic Jews were exiled to Babylon. Now, these communities were allowed to stay together. They saved and preserved manuscripts of the Torah so that we could have them to this very day. So in exile, away from their land, keeping the ancestral laws were a way of recognizing and conveying that Hashem was still sovereign, even in exile, over the Babylonian idols. Keeping the law, keeping the commandments was a way to honor him as the one true God. It was almost a subversive manner of living separately that conveyed in your face, Babylon. After the return to Jerusalem from exile, Judea suffered under more and more invaders. At the time of Yeshua and the Talmudim, the disciples, Judea was conquered under control of Rome. There was a definite class structure. You had the very, very rich and the very very, very poor. The Levitical Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were an aristocratic class. Wealth and title was passed on through bloodlines. No American dream here, ladies and gentlemen. No, if I work hard at my job, I can go up to the next class. I, I dare say that would have even entered their consciousness. To a large extent, position was held by directly or indirectly being in collaboration with their Roman captors. Now, at this time, pardon me, at this time, the widespread conversational language of the entire Holy Land was Aramaic. That's a Semitic language very, very close to Hebrew, kind of like Italian and Spanish. Hebrew had not been a conversational language for 200 years, but remained the liturgical language of Judaism. So, it's very, very safe to say that all Observant Jews knew the Torah inside and out, like the back of their hands, especially a Pharisee like Nicodemus. 
The scriptures also state that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a high council of learned Jewish males, most likely Levites, but without a doubt experts in the Torah laws. Now I'm sure that if all of us could have listened in on some of the many conversations that the Sanhedrin had in private, one of the very hard topics of conversation would be we're God's chosen people and we're keeping the law, we're obeying the commandments. Why? Why have we spent the last 750 some odd years living as a conquered people under pagan armies? What's wrong with this picture? And believe you me, the Jewish authorities came up with some very pessimistic answers. See, they believed that Isaiah was the last major prophet inspired by God. Isaiah wrote some 500 years before the birth of Yeshua. Since then, it was thought that God had removed himself from the human scene. Almost as if God was in heaven saying, well, I've done all I can, swim or drown, folks. The Pharisees definitely believed that human suffering was caused by disobedience, that is, breaking the commandments. They believed that only strong adherence to the commandments pleased God. They emphasized keeping the Sabbath. They, they emphasized ritualistic washing, it's up to five times a day in mikvot, and tithing of properly kosher food, as well as ritualistic, almost obsessive, keeping of the Levitical laws. And over time, over time, this caused a very condescending divide between the Pharisees on one hand and the other 99% of the population. The peasant class, the common folk, the Am Ha'edits, the people of the earth. The Am Ha'edits, the common folk, their first language was the Galilean dialect of Aramaic. Today it would be called Syriac. And this is the language that Yeshua and the Talmudim most likely spoke. And for the most part, they were illiterate. Economically, they just scraped by. They worked as fishermen, farmers, sheep herders, and odd job laborers. They worked very long and very hard for their next meal. And what little income they made was taxed by the Romans tithed as commanded by Mosaic law and taxed again by the Jerusalem temple. Whatever was left over, whatever little bit was left over, fed your family, might feed your family for one meal. Now imagine being one of these common folk. If you're a woman, you probably spent your life six days a week from sunup to sundown with six kids running around behind you, a baby in this arm, and a grinding stone in this one, or in front of a loom. If you're a man, you spend every day, sun up to sundown, six days a week, on a boat or in a field. It's out of the question for you to wash one time a day, much less five. Especially when you're living in a land where water is scarce and the nearest well might be miles away. You're illiterate. So obviously you can't read the 600 some odd commandments, much less remember them all, much less follow them all. At best there might be one Torah scroll for an entire community that might be kept in a synagogue or in a reading room miles from your house that must be read to you by a rabbi who considers you unclean. 
You're lucky to even have a meal for your family, never mind if it's been properly tithed. And brothers and sisters, when you understand these things, it starts to become clearer and clearer why Yeshua and the Pharisees butted heads, isn't it? Originally, they had kept the law and they had remained faithful to honor God, to still say God is one. But over the years, they had become from this beautiful, sweet kernel of corn that in the summer you slap some butter and Old Bay on there and oh, it's delicious. Over time, they had become the dried out husk. And the unwritten belief probably was, you know, common folk, we're conquered because of you. If you kept the law better, if you washed like we do, holier than thou, we wouldn't be a conquered people. So here you have Nicodemus. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Nicodemus considered Yeshua and his followers among these unclean common folk. But it's also clear that Nicodemus very much saw something in Yeshua that was somehow not there in his obsession to keep every commandment. Yeshua tended to speak a lot of the kingdom of God. For instance, Yeshua would say things like, Amen, amen, I say unto you. As the King James Bible puts it, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Amen, amen, I say unto you. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, amen, I say unto you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. You see, children are unprogrammed. Children are free from prejudice. They're free from dogmatic tradition. To a child, everyone is equal. That is, until we adults get a hold of them. So here we go. Now we're going to do a little bit of flipping back and forth between uh, John and Genesis. We're going to start at John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, which of course is the Sanhedrin. He came to Yeshua at night. He didn't want any of his other Sanhedrin buddies seeing him talking to this peasant. And said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Both in Aramaic as well as Hebrew, the preposition with could also be translated as in or within. So you could read the statement, no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not in him. Very much a clear statement that Nicodemus at least sees Yeshua as no ordinary man. And Yeshua replies, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. A parallel between no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. 
Robert, it's perfectly cool if you want to, like, each slide that we get to, you just leave it up until the next one. It's perfectly cool to do that. In Aramaic, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, unless he is born min de brish. Min de brish. Now, in Nicodemus' mind, min de brish would trigger the very first word in Torah, which in Hebrew, of course, is bereshit. Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in Hebrew, God created. So in other words, this inescapable concept of regeneration and recreation is being triggered in Nicodemus' mind. And Nicodemus, you can almost hear the condescension in his voice. You know, I'm a teacher of Israel. I've been studying Torah since I was born. You, you... Hillbilly, how can a man be born again when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Yeshua answered, Amen, amen, I say unto you. We're hearing a pattern. That's how Yeshua is speaking. Amen, amen, I say unto you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit, water and spirit, odd. The Aramaic word for water is maya. The Aramaic word for spirit is ruha. The Hebrew word for water is mayim. In Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach, as in ruach hakodesh. And in both languages, this word for spirit also means wind and breath. So back to Genesis. And the earth was without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Ruach of Elohim, was hovering above the waters, was hovering above the Mayim. So what's going here in Nicodemus' mind? His mind is reeling, because certainly Nicodemus knows from Torah that after God's Spirit moved on to water, that God's spirit moved on the water, his first manifestation of himself in creation was light. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, this is my personal opinion. This is just Wayne Blankenship. This is not Ruach HaKodesh-inspired anything. I've always found that very watered down. If you read it in the original Hebrew, it's like, and God says, light be, and light was. If you want to get really literal, about, uh, really literal about it, light be, and light bead. I love it. So, I lost my place. Oh, here I am. So, what Yeshua is saying is that to enter the kingdom, one must be completely recreated, like the original creation, completely transformed. And this can only happen by a working of the Ruach HaKodesh, of Hashem. He drives this point home in verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit, Ruach, gives birth to Ruach, to spirit. And as if reading that Nicodemus is just not handling this very well, I can picture Yeshua leaning in and saying, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind 
The Ruach blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell from where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, of the Ruach. And brothers and sisters, this is quite probably one of the most underrated verses in the entire Bible. The object, the subject, the actor in this verse is the Spirit itself. One could say that what Yeshua is doing, he's drawing an analogy for Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, listen to me. God is not necessarily prompted by dogma, not by repetitive sacrifice, not by perfectionism. You could obey every Levitical law to the letter, and that would not force God's hand. God's spirit moves Nicodemus because he loves. We can see in the next line that Nicodemus is just kind of at a loss for words. The only thing that he can seem to utter out of his mouth is, how can this be? Yeshua says, you are Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? And here come the heavenly things. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. By the way, claiming that he's God's only begotten son is a huge messianic claim. It's also a huge claim of divinity. Nicodemus would have heard that too. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus. God is not disconnected. God is intimately involved, Nicodemus, that he sent his only begotten son without any ritualistic prompting from you, that whosoever, the aristocrat, the peasant, the unwashed masses, the sinner, the prostitute, the tax collector, and even pagan Rome, whosoever, Believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation and resurrection by recreation and relationship by the Spirit of God. God did not stop speaking after Isaiah Nicodemus. God is not separate. God is here. And hene ani, behold, here I am, says our Messiah. Brothers and sisters, God is right here in the midst of the chaos of our lives. He's not way up there looking down on us, waiting for us to scream help, and then we've got his attention. He's right here wanting us to enter into relationship with him. This conversation illustrates our invitation to the kingdom of God extended to us as believers, bought, sealed, and delivered by Messiah Yeshua. And this is what Messiah Yeshua extends to me. 